0: Does anybody listen to podcasts? Yeah, a few of you? Okay, so there are these little radio programs. You can access them through your phone, usually your smartphone. Well, there's a podcast that I really enjoy called Criminal, and it's uh, interviews and stories about different criminal cases across all of history. And the other day I was listening to a, pod, a, a, a episode of Criminal about plane hijackings. Now, some of you will know that plane hijackings were much more... Uh, widespread in the 60s and 70s before there was metal detectors and high security put into airports. You could walk onto a plane with a gun pretty much without a problem. Well, this episode was an interview with a guy named Martin McNally, uh, who in 1972 walked into the St. Louis airport with a wig, a sawed off rifle, hidden of course, a pistol, and a plan to hijack his airplane and get the FBI to deliver him 502 $2,000. They asked him why the 2000 and he said, I need some spending money after I bury the half a million. Now McNally was just an average Joe from Detroit, Michigan, whoop, uh, who didn't have a job and was inspired by other success stories of people who had hijacked planes and gotten away with it and become rich. So Martin McNally headed to his local library, and he began to read up on planes and airports and parachuting. And he decided he was going to carry out his plan. So McNally was successful up to a certain point. He got on the plane. He uh, got a flight attendant to deliver his note to the pilot uh, telling him to call the FBI and that he was armed. He said that he had a bomb and got the pilot to call the FBI. They had to land the plane because they were running out of gas. They got the money. They switched planes. He let a bunch of people go but kept a bunch of others and got very, very far and successful up to a certain point. But then... The problem was that Martin McNally, of course, had never parachuted before and did not expect the turbulency uh, that he was in for. And so what he did was he inadequately strapped the cash to his leg and he lost the half a million dollars midair. Poof. Bummer. Now, um, of course, uh, be just because you want to know what happens in the story is uh, he lands and he ends up getting back home to Detroit. And a few days later, the FBI show up at his door because, oops, he left some fingerprints and some DNA on the airplane and on the note that he turned in. And Martin McNally um, is still in prison serving out two life sentences. Crazy fellow. <laughs> Martin McNally was a risk taker. And I want to talk about risk-taking today. Sometimes taking risk doesn't turn out so well, like for McNally, and I think that's what keeps most of us from being more risky, um, is because we have put lots of energy or time or money into a particular risk-taking endeavor, and when it crumbles, when it falls apart, our uh, riskiness factor goes down a few notches. We are less inclined to be risky. So why take risk when the probability of failure is so high? And I know many of you bought Mega Millions tickets, even though you know you're not going to uh, win. <laughs> but I want to suggest today to you that Christians are called to live risky lives because following Jesus is risky and it calls us to take risks, lots of them throughout our lives. But this riskiness is deeply connected to God's grace because we experience God's grace in and through taking risks on behalf of his kingdom and the spread of the gospel. Now, the passage we're going to camp out today is the passage actually from 1 Kings chapter 17 that we heard just a moment ago um, from the pulpit um, where we meet a widow in a place called Zarephath. But first, I have to give you a little bit of context to this story because we just get this little vignette of Elijah and we all know kind of who he is. But um, there's a greater context in what's going on here when Elijah meets this widow. So what has happened in Israel is that uh, a man named Ahab has become king of Israel. Now, Ahab, was one bad dude listen I want to read to you what it says about him a few verses before our passage this is what it says about Ahab Ahab did more to provoke the Lord the God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him he was the worst of the worst. Why? He erected altars to pagan gods. He built these high places to Baal, the god of the weather, and, draw, and was leading people, God's people astray into paganism and idolatry and all of those sort of basic things that God said, you know, you can't do that if I'm going to be your god, right? And so he's leading God's people astray. And God decides that Elijah is his guy because this is what God always does in the Old Testament in the days of the prophets. When his people are being led astray, he raises up a prophet to go to the people who are in power and to the people of Israel and to tell them exactly what the sin is that they're engaging in, the idolatry that they're engaging in, to uh, forecast the judgment that is coming if they don't turn from their ways, and then also to speak a word of hope and restoration and of God's forgiveness. So Elijah goes to King Ahab and he says, look, there's going to be a drought in the land because of your sin, and it's not going to end until I open my mouth in prayer. Now, um, if you were Elijah, you would do exactly what he did, and he hightailed it out of town because uh, Ahab is not going to take kindly to uh, such words from a scraggly prophet. And so Elijah goes on the run. But here's what's important to remember about the story. Elijah is God's chosen prophet to assist in turning the hearts of the people, of God's people, back to Yahweh. And so his survival at this time of drought is crucial, okay? It's important to think about that. Um, So he goes on the run and God directs him to this place called Zarephath in Sidon. This is in the land of Babylon. And he meets this widow who she's quietly gathering up sticks, probably a downcast demeanor. There's a drought in the land. And Isaiah says, hey, bring me some water. And uh, so she <laughs> stops what she's doing and starts to get him, go to get him some water. And he says, "Hey, while you're at it, why don't you bring me a slice of toast too?" Right? He asks her for some bread. And now think about this widow. She's got to be thinking at this point, <clears throat> "Okay, Mister Prophet, um, no problem at all. Would you like me to go grind up some peanuts and make some peanut butter to put on your bread for you too?" Um, but she 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 begins to go, and then she says to him, "Look." I'm at the end of my food supply and I'm a widow and I've got this young son and we're getting ready to cook our last meal because there's a drought and then we're just going to wait and die, right? She's in a completely desperate situation. And now Elijah says to her, just think about this situation for a minute, right? You couldn't be in much of a worse situation. You've lost your husband. You're, you're scared for your life. You have no resources. You have a young son to take care of, which is probably the most terrifying thought, is having to watch him die of starvation. You couldn't be in much of a worse situation. I know that if I was in this situation, the first thing on my mind would not be, how can I give my resources away to some bumbling prophet who just stumbled onto the scene? My my thoughts would be about making my last couple of days on earth a little more comfortable, Right? So along comes Elijah and says, hey, let me get a drink and a sandwich. And she explains, we're at the bottom of our food supply. And Elijah says, do not fear. And she says, of course, okay, are you serious? <laughs> Did you just say do not fear? Cause I don't know if you noticed, Mr. Prophet, but we're in the middle of a drought and my son and I, like I just said, are about to die. So fear is the name of the game for us right now. And he says, Go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterward, make something for yourself and your son. Now now she has to have the gaping mouth and the, and the blinking eyes, right? Staring at him. And then Elijah says this. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be emptied and the jug will not fail until the day the Lord sends rain on the earth. Now think about this moment of crisis for her. She can take the risk and do what he says and possibly watch him gobble up the last of their reserves and then die. Or she could say, get lost, it ain't happening, buddy. Now, notice, I think it's really interesting in the scripture, if you look, she doesn't actually say anything, and I think this is an interesting detail. She doesn't say, no problem at all, I have so much trust in God, and I feel really great about his provision, and I'm not worried at all, so, you know, here, take what you want, I'll bake you a cake, and, um, and whatever you need, right? She doesn't actually say anything. It doesn't tell us that she had a great, deep, abiding faith and trust that everything was going to go well for her, but she does it. She even at the uh, uh, against acting against her parental instinct, she just simply does it. She takes the risk. And this is beautiful. Watch what it says next, because this is what God wants us to hear from his word today. Listen to this. She went and did as Elijah said, and she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not emptied, nor did the jug of oil fail according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. Here's where we see grace at work. See, we often uh, miss out on the experience of grace in our own lives because when we're in that moment of crisis, we begin to think through the risks that are being asked of us and we find ways to rationalize ourself out of it. I have done it so many times so many times no nope, i'm not going to reach out and apologize lord they were in the wrong they need to come to me first too risky to my pride no nope, i'm not going to volunteer for that i don't have the skills right too risky i don't want to risk looking like a fool i'm not going to reach out and invite that person over i'll just make a fool of myself right i don't want to take that risk for the gospel and for the kingdom if i if i give that god I won't have enough for myself. If I'm I'm not going to go to church today, <laughs> this is one I had to put in there. If I'm, not, I'm not going to go to church today because it's not really going to benefit me. I just don't think it's going to benefit me that much. You see, <clears throat> imagine if the widow had backed down from the risk that she took. Elijah would have had to be on his way somewhere else. She would have run out of food and died. The important thing is that she would have missed out on the opportunity to be instrumental in God's plan for Elijah's survival to draw his people back to himself, right? See, don't ever underestimate what a small, simple risk of obedience to the Lord could be a part of a bigger picture than we could ever, ever imagine. Never underestimate what a small risk could be. But in taking the risk, she experiences grace. She goes from despair and scarcity to hope and abundance because of her simple obedience. Now, it's important to make a distinction when we we, we think about this because it would be easy to walk away from this conversation and think, I just need to do more. I just need to take more risks all the time. I just need to do this to make God happy and take risks on his behalf. What do you want me to do, God? I'll do anything. And we could walk away thinking like that. So it's important to make a distinction here because we can see our faith in one of two ways. We can see our faith as things that we do for God or we can see our faith as something that God does for us. Now, if we see our faith as things that we do for God, it's going to feel like a heavy burden. It's going to feel like pressure, obligation, duty, trying to keep, uh, win God's favor, or keep him satiated, right, with our good works. In this mindset, that mindset just means that you actually don't trust in the goodness of God, right? This is a fundamental problem in the, in the human part. There's a part of our fallen condition is we lack trust. We resist trusting in the goodness of God. See, if we take risks only out of a sense of obligation and pressure, as if God was interrogating us with a demanding eye, then we don't actually act out of love for God. But if we understand our faith, on the other hand, as something that God does for us, that is comes into our broken lives with his grace, shows us his favor, saves us despite our our sinfulness and our rebellion, rewrites our story and calls us to listen and to obey. Then we can respond to him out of love. Then we can respond to him out of love because we're responding to his love for us. Now imagine a situation. Imagine that you're at work and your boss comes in and angrily barks orders at you. Right? Says something like, you better have these reports done by the end of the day. Now you do the work, right? But you do it out of duty and fear. But now imagine another situation. Your boss comes in and says, hey, you've been doing really good work lately. I want you to actually take a week of paid vacation soon. Right? By the way, can you finish the report, those reports by the end of the day? Then, You're going to do the work out of love and gratitude, right? Wow, what a good boss. That was really gracious. You see, that exemplifies the difference between mere religious duty and love of God. John Calvin, famous, well-known uh, reformer from the 16th century, um, people think he's just all about predestination and all these weird the- theological things. But John Calvin actually often spoke about what he called as the lavish, indulgent, fatherly love of God. And uh, he, J- John Calvin said that there were three degrees of love that God has shown us in Jesus Christ. And you, let me just go through them with you real quick. He says, the first is in respect of the redemption that was purchased in the person of him that gave himself to death for us and became accursed to reconcile us to God, his father. So the second is this, that God testifies unto us that he will make us partakers of the benefit that was purchased for us by the death and passion of his son, resurrection to eternal life. And the third is this. He says he not only causes the gospel To be preached unto us, but also makes us to feel the power thereof. So as we know Him to be our Father and Savior, not doubting but that our sins are forgiven us for our Lord Jesus Christ's sake, who brings us the gift of the Holy Spirit to reform us after His own image. So here's the question we have to ask ourselves about taking risks whether it's a financial risk for the kingdom of God, looking forward to a new church here, right? Um, Or the risk of giving your time and energy to serve others or to serve an organization, or it's the risk of being vulnerable enough to ask someone for forgiveness. Whatever the risk is, this is the question we have to ask ourselves. Am I doing this because I've experienced the grace of God in the love of Jesus Christ? Or am I simply doing it out of duty? See, we take risks, friends. We take risks and pour out everything that we have because he poured out everything, his life, for us. That's the model for us. And when we live risky lives because of the grace of God, because of the lavish, indulgent, fatherly love of God, we will see that grace to multiply so that we might have life and have it more abundantly. Remember this, the jar of flour was not emptied, nor did the jug of oil fail. Let us pray. Gracious God of abundance, we stand before you as recipients of your grace. And uh, as recipients of that grace, Lord, we know it carries with it a costly call to follow you and to love you in response to your love for us. So we ask today, Lord, one simple thing, that you would open our hearts to a deeper understanding of your great self-giving love for us, so that we would respond to you as children to a loving Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.